five after, so we're going to pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We acknowledge your word. We trust your word. Your word is forever settled in heaven. We're gathered together in your name to learn your word and to know you better. I pray, God, that uh, that you would allow me to speak truth. And, um, Lord, I pray that this truth would uh, set our souls on fire and that we would be renewed and and encouraged and uh, and edified, God, to go forth in your name. And I claim it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going to be covering the... Hey, come on in, Avery. We're going to be... Hey, guys. Hey, Sherman. <coughs> oh, come on in. I knew we had some more coming. Those are the ones that need to tell their parents. Did a sister angel, huh? Um, tonight we're going to try to cover two chapters, and um, and uh, it's going to be some good stuff. The the author of Hebrews kind of takes a, a a turn here in the in the eighth chapter, and uh, I'm going. Uh, there's a lot of types and shadows. If that scares you, that doesn't mean I'm an atheist because I'm going to teach you some some typical. Uh, some types and some shadows and some figures and some patterns because uh, God laid it out that way. And uh, when I was a you know a new convert, I was in the old prayer room at the POA and the Lord began to show me. It was almost not an audible voice, but it was pretty close about Haman and how Haman had leprosy and leprosy represented sin and sin had to be dealt with and he had to dip in the Jordan River, which represented baptism and uh, just the parallels and the types and shadows. And and uh, I was very young in the Lord. And I think that may have been my very first experience with types and shadows. And so we're going to be doing some of that tonight. Uh, Sister Jill, you might need to come stand up uh, and read for a while. I'll tell you when to sit down. How about that? <laughs> Go ahead. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, and minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest." seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. Now, the, remember the, the book of Hebrews is written to Christian Hebrews who are struggling and they're being persecuted, they've been uh, disowned by their families. Uh, many of them have been uh, dispelled from the synagogues and not able to worship. And they are going through this at the same time, uh, persecution from the Roman government. And the author of Hebrews is writing to them because they're teeter-tottering and considering going back to, uh, to the law. And we know, anybody in here know you can't be saved by the law? The law won't save you. The animals couldn't wash your sins away. You couldn't make it through the law. And so he, he spends those first seven chapters talking about something very powerful, Jesus Christ, the latter-day spokesman. And he says here, when he begins chapter 8, he says, now I'm going to sum this up. He's at the right hand. He sat down, and he's at the throne of the majesty in heaven. And we're going to start talking about an earthly pattern of something that's in heaven. 
And he's, he's telling us we're fixing to make a right-hand turn. So the author uh, is going to summarize what he said. Now, here's some of what he, he's already told us, that, that uh, Jesus has a better priesthood. It's a tabernacle in heaven versus on earth. It's, of the, it's a priesthood of the order of Melchizedek versus of the order of Levi or Aaron. It's not needing to offer any sacrifice for himself like the other priest did because he had no sin. It's his own blood rather than the blood of bulls and goats. It's a sacrifice that was only needed to be offered one time versus every day, every day, every day. This ritual, these blood sacrifices, and then once a year behind that veil that we're going to look at tonight. And I've got so much visual here tonight that the people that are going to hear it on the podcast are going to be at a disadvantage, but that, I can't help that. And that, that Christ ever lives to make intercession for us, that he didn't stop like the priest did because those Old Testament priests, priests stopped. You know why they stopped? Because they died. But he ever lives to make intercession. So it's better, it's better, it's better. And he uh, is the last day spokesman, and he's greater than the angels. And so he moves from there. The second thing I want to point out about these first few uh, verses is that he admonishes uh, Moses to make sure you dot your I's and cross your T's and do it exactly like I showed you in the mount. And here's God Almighty uh, encouraging Moses to make sure you don't leave anything out. Don't add to, don't take away. Make sure you, you lay it out just like I had it. And the measurements, the colors, everything. God is so uh, detailed with this Old Testament tabernacle. that, And we're going to see why when we get into it and start looking at, at the veil and looking at the Ark of the Covenant and some of that stuff. And then um, thirdly, uh, he mentions, and just so you understand, that if Jesus was here, he wouldn't be a priest. Uh, under under the Old Testament. And there's a reason for that because he was of the tribe of Judah. He was not of the tribe of Levi or Aaron. So he didn't qualify. Jesus wasn't qualified to be a priest under the law. Okay, He, he was of the order of Melchizedek. He was a new order. He was a higher order. Okay. Next slide. All right, Jill, go ahead. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days cometh, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. Thank you. Covenant is a binding promise of a far-reaching, a far-reaching importance. Notice that if you go back through, you go Genesis 3, Adam disobeys, man's kicked out of the garden. There's that separation that starts in Genesis chapter 3. You go just a little ways further, and when you get to Genesis 6, the, the Bible says that man, every thought was evil continually. And so God told Moses to build the ark, and there's the flood, and he reduces the population back down to 8. And you go just a little bit further in chapter 11... And, that, and these people have now grown, uh, and there's more of them. We don't know how many there were, but there were thousands, I'm sure. Started building uh, a tower and to make them, themselves a, a name 
And uh, so that's uh, 2,000 years I just went through. And all of a sudden, God kind of does one of these. You know what that means, don't you, Paul? And he, and he gets him one man. And what he spent 2,000 years, 11 chapters covering 2,000 years, he spends the rest of the book of Genesis, which goes all the way to chapter 50, on this one man and his son and grandson and their family. Okay? And so what happens is when we get under, when God starts dealing with Abraham, he starts making steps. And the Bible says it's line upon line, precept upon precept. So God's got a plan. You see in the scripture where he'll say in the fullness of time, God's got a plan. He's got a, he's got a, a, a calendar. God's got a watch. His is better. Keeps better time than Sister Ellen. She's five, three minutes fast. <laughs> but when he's dealing with Abraham and his descendants in Genesis, he, he appeared to Abraham ten different times. And you say, that's a lot. Well, uh, he lived to be 175. That's not that much. He appeared to, to Jacob, Isaac and Jacob three or four times. So it was God was just barely moving toward man. And then the law was given to Moses. And we're going to see in a minute that God's glory was right in the middle of his people. He was closer now. His law was external. We're going to find out that it was on tablets of stone and, and he's going to come closer later. But that next step under the law was a step closer because now he's with his people, but they can't access God. They can't be in his presence like Adam was. Okay? And then Christ comes. Okay? When Christ comes, he walked them. He laid hands on them and healed them. He, he taught them. He walked on water. He was closer to them. He kept getting closer and closer and closer. And then finally, after the Holy Ghost fell, John 14, 17 tells us this. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. So it's, see Gary, it's line upon line, closer and closer and closer until our day. And the Bible says the angels desired to look into our day. The Old Testament apostles, the Old Testament prophets desired to look into our day. So we're, we're, we're such privileged people to live in the dispensation. You didn't have to bring a goat tonight. And look at your neighbor and say, you didn't have to bring a goat tonight. Uh, okay. Next slide. Go ahead, Jill. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities, will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxes old is ready to vanish away. Okay, you can rest a while. Thank you. It's a a new covenant, a new dispensation. We refer to it as the grace dispensation or the church age. The old covenant, that's the law. Okay, so that's what's being referred to here. If you, if you, uh, run your reference on that, you would find out that chapter 8, verse 10 through 12, which is everything she read except that very last verse, is a direct quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33 and 34. Okay? And so there's three parts of that I want to just, just pick out and make sure that we get some, some understanding from it. 
put laws into their mind and write them in their heart. When Jesus came on the scene, he stood up uh, and, and he preached the Beatitudes, okay, in Math, Matthew chapter 5. When he got through with those nine blessed, blessed Beatitudes, he started saying some, some other things. You're the light, you saw the uh, light of the world, you're the salt of the earth. And, and, he, and he gets down to verse 17 of chapter 5 of Matthew, and he said, I didn't come to destroy the law. Now, this is what we're talking about. When, when the author of Hebrews takes this turn here in chapter 8, he's talking about shifting co- uh, covenants. He's talking about shifting from law to grace. That's, that's, that's the turn that he's fixing to make here. And we're going to talk a lot tonight about covenants, okay? And uh, so Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, the old covenant. I came to fulfill the law. And so he goes on and he says this. Watch me now. 521. Ye have heard it said of them of old, thou shalt not kill. What's that? That's the law. He says, uh, but I say, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. 27, 527. Ye have heard it said of them of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. What is that? That's the law. Next three words. But I say. 33. Again, ye have heard that it had been said of them old, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oath. Next three words. But I say. You know what's happening here? This is what I call, this is my term. I don't know. I didn't steal this from anybody. I didn't get it out of a book. This is the internalization of the law. It was written on rock. And Jesus is telling you. Now understand, when he's saying these words, he's living under law. He's talking, he talked a whole lot and taught a lot of parables and did a lot of things about a dispensation that he did not live in. Okay? And, I, and I'll prove that to you. But uh, he's saying here, this is what's been said to you. This is what you've been taught. But now we've got a shift happening. How many years have we done? Are we doing shift again this year, Pastor? That's a thing. There's a shift going on right now. Jesus is, the, Jesus is the guy holding the transmission. Okay, he's the one going to make it shift. Amen. Verse 38. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, two for two. But I say, okay, and, and I won't belabor the point because you can go there and read it. 43. Ye have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. But I say, Got a lot of but I say's in here, don't we, Brother Gary? You know why? Because he's the word. And he came, Sister Ellen, to make this shift and to not destroy the law. The law's good. It was it, it served its purpose. It did what God wanted it to do. It was a schoolmaster to bring him to, to Christ. But it's all about Jesus. Every bit of it. It's about your whole book. He said, He said, that old testament, the prophets, it's all about me. Okay? Heaven and earth. All power in heaven and earth. Belongs to me, and I could go on. Uh, uh, take heed that you do your do not your honor before men, because they would do it. They were, their motives weren't right when they were given. They were given for the wrong reasons. I say, uh, chapter six, verse five: uh, When you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites. I say, okay. So he goes on, and he's he's making this adjustment. It's the beginning of it. John the Baptist was kind of on the front fringes of that, and then Christ hit it full speed. Um, John 3, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, 
He's talking under law about something that pertained to grace. He said, you must be born again. Nicodemus is like deer in the headlight. Okay. John chapter 4. He's talking to a woman at the well. He said, I, he said if you'd ask me, I'd give you living water. She's like, hmm, yeah. what is this living water? Is that something uh, Pfizer's making or Moderna? Living water. Fountain of Youth, Florida, huh? He's talking about the Holy Ghost, but it was not available. Chapter 7, same thing. He comes out of the temple in that great day of the feast. He said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Was that available under law? This spake he of the Holy Ghost, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given. Okay? So, his teachings and his parables and, uh, and, and his, even his miracles are all pointing to this new covenant. This new dispensation. And we're going to get to the end of this thing. And, and the, the author of Hebrews is going to say, without the death of a testator, you can't, have a new, you can't have a new testament. And so he came to do that. He said, for this purpose, I came. To do what? To die. So that this new covenant, this grace dispensation, this Acts 2.38 message, this plan of salvation where you can have faith and put your total faith in, in a Savior and a Redeemer who, who was sinless and was not under the curse, Sherwin. You know what the curse is, right? The wages of sin is death. He wasn't under that. You know why? Because he had no sin. But he willingly laid down his life so that we could have forgiveness of sins. The second thing I want to point out in this section right here is that all shall know me. All shall know me. That's in uh, verse 11. And that could, if you didn't take that in proper context, if you're in the kingdom... That means you've been born again. That means you've been filled with the Holy Ghost. So what he's saying there is anybody that's in the kingdom, anybody that's in my new kingdom is going to know me. They're going to be born of my spirit. Okay? As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. So that's what he's, that's what he's referring to there. And knowing him, believe me, is critical. We, we talked about uh, Peter and uh, uh, who do men say that I am and thou art to Christ. And Jesus says, now, Peter, upon this rock I'll build my church, and that rock is that relationship, that intimate. I can't know Jesus for you, Sister Sharon. Uh, you, I can't know Jesus for, for you, A Avery. You can't know Jesus for me. I got to, Each one of us in this room has got to make a decision and to know the Lord. Okay, And so knowing gets to become knowing Him. K-N-O is a huge word in... Um, in uh, Matthew seven twenty three, at judgment time, Jesus says, Then I'll profess unto you, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The litmus test at judgment time was not you uh, didn't pay your tithes, which I think you should do. The litmus test was not you didn't follow the standards of your church or your organization, which I think you should do. The litmus test was I never knew you. Then when he gets to Matthew 25 and it's the foolish virgins and they show up, he says, I know you not. Why didn't he say, I never knew you to them? It's still the same litmus test. You still have to know him. But he couldn't tell them, I never knew you, because he did. He had known them. They had backslidden. They had let the oil run out. All is always a type and a shadow of the Holy Ghost, okay? All right, the third thing that I want to point out is 
Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. This was foreign to the people under the law. Now, remember, he's writing to the Hebrew people, and they had seen this bloodshed. They had seen just day in and day out, just millions of gallons, I guess, of, of, of animal bloodshed. And um, uh, he mentions here this new covenant, there's going to be remission of sins. And, and under the old covenant, there wasn't remission. They were rolling them forward. The scripture is very clear. I'll probably hit on it three or four times tonight. Animal blood does not remit sin. Animal blood does not get sin forgotten by God. Is that, is that proper grammar? Remission, according to Blue Letter Bible, forgiveness or pardon of sins, letting, go, letting them go as if they never had been committed. Remission is not, forgiveness is deeper than forgiveness. If I come in here and Brother Josh has got this place spotless and I spill my Kool-Aid on the carpet, I can, I can say, I'm sorry, Brother Josh, and he can say, okay, I forgive you. And he can really forgive me, but there's still a stain in that carpet. I got to go get carpet master or I'll go get my wife or somebody to, to get that stain out of that carpet for it to be remitted. There's two different levels there. There's forgiveness and there's remission, okay? So he says under the new covenant, under the new covenant, he's going to give remission. That's different. That's different from rolling them forward. Snowball, every year, Every year that high priest had to slip into that Holy of Holies and sprinkle that animal blood on the. Every year the Bible says the sins of the people came up in the nostrils of God and he would, and, and, and it was more this year than it was last year because another 360 Jewish days had gone by and now the, the snowball was bigger and it snowballed for thousands of years until it got to one night, one three o'clock day on a day of atonement where Christ was crucified for the sins of all mankind. And that's where remission was available. And we're going to talk a little bit about that some more. Matthew 26, 28, Jesus said, for this is my blood of the new Testament. There's that word testament is covenant, which is shed. Why? For the remission of sins. When Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, he says, they said, what must we repent and be baptized, every one of you? Same words, for the remission of sins. It's like a quarterback and a wide receiver. If you don't, if you don't have both, a quarterback can throw a perfect pass, Doc. He can throw it right there, right between the numbers. And if the receiver don't catch it, you got nothing. And the receiver can be the greatest, fastest Got Fred Bolitnikoff glue on his hands, and 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 if the quarterback can't get the ball close enough to him from the catch, it it ain't gonna work. So it's the Jesus said, "This is my blood which is shed for the remission of sins." And Peter stands up and says, "Repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ." That's why we do it that way. And then he says, "What it's for? It's not for public profession of faith. It's not for church membership. It is for the remission where God forgets about your sin." How you like that? You come tell them about it six months later, and God said, what are you talking about? That was on the blood. I, I, don't, I forgot about that. You say, well, God can't forget. Wait a minute. With God, nothing's impossible. So don't, don't put limits on God just because you have them, okay? All right. I better go on before I make somebody mad. <laughs> Chapter 10, that's Jill's territory. She's going to cover Hebrews 10. 10.3 says, but in those sacrifices, talking about the animals, there is a remembrance again made of sin every year. Every year. This is the old covenant. The new covenant's got a better deal. Much better deal. 
Okay. I'm going to read this one, Jill, and let you have a break. Hebrews uh, <clears throat> chapter 9. So we went through 8 pretty fast. Verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. Now, I'm giving you a picture. That's, I thought it was a little blurry, but I thought that was a pretty awesome picture. There's the, there's the glory cloud. You know that, you young guys, you know that the, at night the glory cloud was over the tabernacle and during the day, I'm sorry, at night the pillar of fire was over the tabernacle and during the day the glory cloud was over the tabernacle. And the, one was because it got cold and in the... Um, in the, uh, in the nighttime, and so that fire was for warmth and it was for light so they could see, okay? And the, during the day, they would have probably burned up, but God put a, a glory cloud over them. And where was that glory cloud coming out? It wasn't coming out from, from here, here. It was right here in the very back, and we're going to find out why it was coming out of the, the back part of this tabernacle. <clears throat> there are... Two chapters in the Word of God describing creation. That impress you? There are 50 chapters in the Word of God describing the tabernacle. And I don't know what percentage of churches teach it, preach it, study it, but in my opinion, the tabernacle is the best kept secret in the Bible uh, concerning approaching God, salvation, worship. Uh, balance in your life, uh, all the above. So everybody take a 30-second break and put your seatbelt on because we're fixing to talk about the best-kept secret in the Bible, okay? There's the camp. That's the way the camp was laid out. And if you could read these little bitty words, those are the names of the tribes. There's, I'm talking, the... Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had the 12 sons, and the 12 sons were the father of the 12 tribes. And that was how they was laid. Does anything you see there in that layout? This is the east, west, north, south. Is it in the shape of the cross? And right in the very center, is there a message God might be sending us there? He wanted to be right in the middle. See, God doesn't want to be Sunday morning and Wednesday night, God. I can't find that. Lisa, is that in your Bible? I can't find that. T-Bone, is that in your, You got that? <laughs> I shall be the God of Sunday and Wednesday. <laughs> nope, here it is. Right in the heart. Right in the middle. He, he, what did he say? Take up your cross and follow me. He who does not take up his cross is not worthy of me. Um this uh, layout represents the fact that God's presence was with His people, and that's right where He wanted to be. Um, okay, I'm going to do another slide and just go forward. Okay, this is the layout of the actual court, the tabernacle court. And I'm, I put this one on a lot of the pages going forward because we're going to talk about some of the items, and I want you to be able to, to, to remember where they're at as we kind of walk through on this tour um, of the uh, tabernacle plant. First thing, <clears throat> I'm going to tell you some stuff that you, you shouldn't know right now, and I might have to kill you, but <laughs> I'll plead for mercy, plead the blood. Uh, 
it won't firm up for you maybe till later. But I'm going to tell you, go ahead and tell you while we've got the big picture here, we got the core. This gives us a pattern of how God came to man. Notice that God told Moses, make it exactly like the pattern. Don't, don't add to, don't take. This shows us exactly how God is going to come. It's a picture, okay? Because we're going to find out in a little while, behind this veil, where this Ark of the Covenant, this is where the glory cloud and the pillar of fire came from, was what represented the presence of God Almighty, the creator of all things, the judge of all men. His presence was right back here. And there was this veil. And we're going to read a scripture that says that veil is the flesh. So God Almighty, God Almighty put on flesh. He came, okay? He was the light of the world. He was the bread of life. And he had the words of eternal life. He, when Peter said, where else are we going to go? You're the only ones with the words of eternal life. So he had the word. He was the light and he was the bread. He came out. He got baptized by John the Baptist. This is, uh, this is the brazen laver. We're going to find that out in a minute. Y'all just trust. Y'all don't have to trust me right now. How many of y'all can trust me? And he goes a little bit further. Christ does. And he goes to Calvary. This was the place of death and bloodshed. Because man's here. God's here. Man's here, and this is the map. This is the blueprint. This is the type, the pattern, the shadow of how God, years later, after this, when he gives it to Moses under law to start the law, and then he comes himself to fulfill it and to end the law. Okay? You see it? Okay. This is also a pattern of how man comes to God. See, man's over here. And like I told you, God's back here. Repent. Paul said, I die daily. Repentance is really death. It's death to your life. I surrender. Where, where you leave me, I'll follow. And what you feed me, I'll swallow. And all those other little one-liners. TF10, he would say. Okay. So you come here, you repent. You be baptized in Jesus' name. You come in here, and we're going to find out this is the church age. And then you get when you get past the flesh... Uh, you're filled with the Holy Ghost. So it's repent, be baptized, and then the, the Holy Ghost because God's back here. So man's coming to God this way. God came to man this way. Pattern, it works both ways. Any questions? You still got your shoes back there, Ellen? I think they came <laughs> 2,000 cubits. The size of this, this is called the holy place, and this is called the holy of holies or the holiest of all. Okay? This place right here <clears throat> was uh, 10 cubits high, 10 cubits wide, and, uh, and um, 20 cubits deep. Okay? So it's 10 by 10 by 20. If you multiply that out and you were a good mathematician or statistician, you'd find out that was 2,000 square cubits. Symbolic of the 2,000-year church age. Okay? When you get past the veil, it's 10 by 10 by 10. 10 by 10 by 10. It's a perfect square. If you did your math on that, that is 1,000 cubic, symbolic of the 1,000-year millennial reign that happens right after the church age. You got it? You know, there's a, scripture, there's a scripture in the Old Testament, which is quoted again in the New Testament. Peter quotes it, that a day... To the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Well, God's got a big calendar, and He's got a big week on His calendar, and He rested on the seventh day. That's when uh, Revelation 20 says, I think, 
uh, six times mentions that thousand years. And Lucifer is going to be bound up for that thousand years. And that's when we're going to be with the Lord. And, uh, and then this church age. And then just there's 56 of these poles and they're five cubits apart. And several of the researchers that I studied said that sometimes cubits are considered to be 18 inches. They're really supposed to be as far as the elbow is to the end of the finger. But here they use 25-inch cubits. So if you do the math, that would be 7,000 inches. So there's 7,000 inches representing the 7,000 years of man's total time in the fence. Okay? So there's a lot of symbolism here. Um, Next slide. As we come in, see I put this up here. As we come in, we're going to go from... from, uh, Right to left, I guess, as we enter into the tabernacle court. The, uh, the first place you come to, and uh, at the POA, they had built one uh, life-size. It's five cubits by five cubits by three cubits. So it stands, it stands the top of it is about right here. It's, uh, three cubits is um, 45, 50 inches, something like that. So it's, you know, it's a big old thing. And later on, when they got when they got to the permanent temple, they they built it up high. But when they were moving around, uh, getting notifications. When they were moving around uh, in the wilderness, a lot of times they'd have to they'd have to pack up and and move this thing. So they had to keep it portable. And uh, this was the place of bloodshed, the brazen altar. There, uh, there must be a sacrifice for a sinful man to come into uh, communion or union or the presence of a holy God. And they would, they would, this is where this happened. Uh, as the first priest began their services at the tabernacle, fire from the presence of God came down and consumed the sacrifice. Leviticus 9.24, this is cool. The fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar and when all the people saw it they shouted and fell on their face boy we could have a we could have a APC shouting service if uh, heaven like they did that was the very first time and it was lit and uh, the first altar of this type was made to be moved with the children of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness his construction was described in Exodus 27 one through eight, if you want to research it. Uh, there was a, a, a mesh grate that was down in here, and that's where they put the, the wood and the, the, the animal sacrifices. And uh, it was covered in bronze, which bronze always represents sin. Uh, the fire was to never go out, which represents God's judgment for sin. And uh, its overall representation is repentance. Okay, first item you come to. It's a huge item. The next item that we're going to come to is the the place of washing. It's the brazen laver. See the priest washing. They didn't only have to wash their hands. They had to wash their hands and their feet. This is this is the second item. This is the brazen altar. This is the laver of water. <clears throat> okay, the, the brazen laver. The water in the laver removed dirt from the bodies of the priests. Um, but it also made them ceremonial, ceremonially clean so they could serve the living God. Similarly, the water of baptism makes those who come to Jesus clean so that we can serve the living God. 
Both the laver and its base were made uh, of bronze. Bronze mirrors supplied by the Israelite women who served at the tabernacle door were used to make the laver and its base, and they were uh, anointed with holy oil uh, before they were used. Exodus uh, 30, verse 17, I think I have it up there. Watch this. The Lord spake to Moses and said, Thou shalt also make a laver of brass, and his foot also of brass, to wash withal, and thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet thereat, when they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. But God's not playing. You know, <laughs> this was serious stuff to him. Church, he doesn't play church. Or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offerings made by fire unto the Lord, so they shall wash their hands and their feet that they die not. Okay. So this is representation of baptism in our, in our dispensation, in the, the grace dispensation. But we're getting closer. The priests are moving on. Now we know that only the high priest is going to be able to go behind that veil. That veil's a, that veil's a real big deal. We're going to see a picture of it in a minute. <clears throat> Layout of the tabernacle. Okay, Jill, I think I might need you back again. Can I just sit here because I can see it really well? Okay, if you can read real loud, if you, if you can okay. scream. First wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Cherubims are angels. We're going to see that when we get to the Ark of the Covenant. And they're overshadowing the mercy seat. We're going to look at all that. So this is just a quick overview of the outer court and the whole layout. All right. Next slide. The, this is the entrance curtain. Uh, as you would come before... Uh, uh, I, can't, I can't do it on there, can I? As you would come, this would be what you'd be looking at on the front, on the east side here, is the uh, curtain, and it white represents righteousness. These were cut; they didn't make these colors up. Moses didn't go ask his wife what color to, to make the curtain. Okay, uh, blue represented faithfulness, red represents the blood, and purple represents royalty. Nothing is by chance. It, 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 nothing in this whole tabernacle plan is is just just happened or it was just by chance or they or God left it out. God gave them everything. You see that, Brother Gary? All right. Next slide. <clears throat> the interior. Now we're now we're seeing inside. Now, now, now it's gonna get good here, okay? Those are your three pieces of furniture on that. This is the holy place. This is the holy of holies. There's that veil. I'm not sure you can tell you're sitting at such an angle there, but that veil is separating. And only one guy could go behind that veil, and he couldn't go back there every day. He could go back there one time a year on the Day of Atonement, okay? This is a picture of God's desire for you and I, the interior here. Now, <clears throat> the beautiful gold covered the interior, and it speaks of God's design for His saints to be holy with clean hands and a pure heart. We're told in 
uh, in the epistles three times that our body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. 1 Timothy 1.5 says, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart. God's looking for cleanliness on the inside. When Jesus came, here's what the scripture says about him. Watch me now, Paul. I don't want to get too deep for you. Isaiah 53 and 2. He hath no form nor comeliness. Now we see beautiful, handsome guys when we see Jesus, right? Either the people that painted it are wrong or Isaiah is wrong. And I got my money on uh, the people painting it are wrong, okay? He hath he had no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Now the outside of this thing was U-G-L-Y. Okay? Sure, when somebody will interpret that for you later. It was badger skin. It was ugly. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't comb your hair. Okay? I'm just telling you what God's interested in, okay? God's interested in the internal. He's interested in the heart. Okay? He, uh, look, look, look. So, Jesus is, is, is there's no beauty, there's no comeliness, but watch. Matthew 17, 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment as white as the light. You see where God's emphasis is? Jesus didn't, he, he was not, he didn't look like, a, I can't think of a good looking movie star. I don't watch enough. Clark Gable. No, it's, it's David. <laughs> um, George Clooney. How about that? Well, he's getting old too, isn't he? Um, I, he was not, uh, that was not what would attracted you to Jesus. It was what was on the inside. And so the emphasis here, this was all amazing. When, when God brought them out of Egypt and he told Moses, he said, you're going to spoil Egypt? They spoiled Egypt. Now, some of that they messed up with and they made a golden calf. and whatever, But here's where the rest of it went. All right. <clears throat> Am I teaching good? Okay. I just want to make sure I was going to sit down if I wasn't. All right, let's see. Slide, another slide. Golden candlestick. So when you walk in, you're in the holy place, and over immediately to your left is this seven candle, golden candlestick. Uh, it's also called the lampstand. It's also called the menorah. Okay, and it and it had to stay lit. And part of the ministry of the the priests were to keep keep the wicks clean and keep the oil in it. And uh, let me read you what, what the um, experts tell us about the golden candlestick. It was the only source of natural light in the tabernacle. If you think about it, it's dark because they had layers and layers of that badger skin and those other coverings on that, on that tent. And um, it was made of one piece of gold that had been beaten, beaten into shape. And since it was gold, which represents deity, and since it was beaten... Then when you put the two together, it represents that God was going to be beaten. Okay, so there's a, there's a, a message in that. This is the light that shined in the darkness. And also, it was, uh, the, it was only powered by one thing, oil, which represents the Holy Ghost. Okay, so that's on your left. As you go through and you walk in in front of you, right by the veil... Is what's called the altar of incense. The altar of incense shadows the worship and the prayers of the faithful saints rising up to heaven. Okay, the 
the smell, the smoke, the incense represents when you praise God, when we get to worshiping on Sunday morning, or when you're in your closet of prayer, or in worshiping and praising God. That's what that represents. Psalms 141, verse 1. Lord, this is David. I cry unto thee, make haste unto me, give ear unto my voice when I cry unto thee. Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense. Revelation 8 and 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having the golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense, and that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar. Now this is in heaven. Revelation 8 and 3, where John records. The altar was constructed of shittim wood, uh, Achaia wood, and it was covered with pure gold, Exodus 37. Incense was burned daily on this altar uh, at, at the time of the morning and the evening sacrifices. The coals used on this altar had to be taken from the altar of burnt offerings. The incense had to be made by the apothecary, and it was a specific formula, and it couldn't be used anywhere else uh, in the camp. And it had to stay fresh. Third item in the holy place. How am I doing? 750. The table of showbread. Okay. It's on your right when you walk in. The table of showbread. It had 12 loaves of bread on it. Jesus came and said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. Here is the table of showbread, and it has 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes. Okay. And it may even represent the 12 baskets that they took up, Pastor, after the 5,000 were fed. Um, keep going got a lot to cover so the church age you walk in the 2000 years church age I'm going to show you something here I think the Lord showed me this if not just something I saw Uh, John 4 23 Jesus is talking to the woman okay here's what he says but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers he, see, he's talking, Pastor, he's not talking. He's, he said the, the hours cometh, and it's, it's, we're right on the brink of it. See, he's moving them from law to grace, okay? Different covenant, this new covenant. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him, what? Must worship him. In spirit and truth. So if you worship God and you're all spirit, then you're going to be like a, a bottle rocket. Charismatic, boom. And then your church closes down. because you know, all right? If you're all truth, the Bible says the letter killeth. And you're going to be a Pharisee. But he says the true worshiper in the church age. In the church. So what's on your right hand? It's the word, the, word, the bread. What's on your left hand? The Holy Ghost, the all. The true worshiper. What's in front of you? The worship. Right hand. The word. The spirit. The worship. And that's the only way you're going to do it. Because I didn't make that up. Must worship him in spirit and truth. Don't be all spirit. You're running laps and you run right on out the back of the church and we don't see you for six months. You know. Don't be all don't be all truth. Well, you got your eyes dotted and your T's crossed, but you ain't even clapping or praising or worshiping. You got to do it here. You got to do it here. Okay, you might get off. Sister Bright, it might take a couple extra laps and get a little heavy on the spirit sometime, but that's okay. She'll get it. She'll get it balanced out. 
I believe the Lord gave me that. Okay, another slide. The veil. Now we're to. Now we're to. The veil. This is the veil. The ark is behind it. If I go back one more, you can see. The veil, right here. Okay. The veil is pretty important piece of furniture. It's very colorful. I got two scriptures there, or two scripture pieces, portions of scripture. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Remember I told you that God started in the back and came and put on flesh, and the veil represented flesh, and the scripture would tell us that the veil, there it is. It's uh, verse 20 of chapter uh, 10. That's Jill's lesson she's going to teach. All right, Matthew 27, 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, what happened? The veil of the temple was rent in twain. This veil that had been there for thousands of years that separated the ark, the God Almighty from, from man, that separated the holiest of holies from the holy place, that only one man could go behind and now it's ripped in two from the top to the bottom. Uh, the earth did quake and the rocks rent and the graves were opened and many bodies of saints which slept arose and came out of the grave after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. What in the world? What is that stuff they watch? Zombies? <laughs> <laughs> Ephesians 4, 8 says, Jesus, when he was crucified, <clears throat> led captivity captive, and he descended uh, before he ascended, and he gave gifts to men. So there were Old Testament saints who had sought God and pursued God and had, had their sins rolled and rolled and rolled, but they, and they were in paradise waiting for the blood of the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb. You see, Jesus' blood is not just for those that would come afterwards. Jesus' blood is the middle, is the centerpiece. It was for those that would come before, and it was for those that would, would come after. Uh, slide. All right, there is the Ark of the Covenant. <clears throat> it's behind the veil. On top of it is the mercy seat. This is a big lid. It's called the mercy seat. These are called cherubims or angels, and the wings are touching each other. They're, they're bowing like the angels in Isaiah 6. They're, they're, they're over and the, the high priest would come in and he would once a year and he would sprinkle that blood right there. And what that meant was inside, we're going to find out there was a, a, a two tablets were in there. That was the law. What does the law demand? It demands judgment. It demands death for sin. And what did he, what did he do? He put on that lid. He put that blood on that lid to cover, atone, not, not remission, atone for those sins of those people until the new covenant came into effect. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was where God's presence dwelt and where justice and judgment towards sin was satisfied. It is referred to almost 200 times in the Old Testament. The priests were instructed to carry the Ark with staves and were not allowed to touch the Ark. User was struck dead for touching the Ark in the second uh, in Second uh, Samuel chapter 6, the law demanded death for sin, but the high priest was able to defer the judgment 
of the, uh, on the Day of Atonement by placing the blood of the innocent lamb, the innocent for the guilty, right, on the mercy seat. There is a mention of, of this amazing ark in Revelation, Revelation chapter 11, verse 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and earthquake and great hail. So it, it's, it's going to be there when we get there. Don't worry. I don't know how it gets there, and there's a lot of things that we may not understand. Inside the veil, we're told there's three pieces. <clears throat> Hebrews 9 and 4, which had a golden censer uh, and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold. Wherein, in the Ark, was the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and that's a whole two different lessons you could do on manna and the rod that budded, and the tables of the law, the tables of the covenant. They were kept inside the Ark of the Covenant. That just gives you kind of a quick view of... All right, Jill, I need you to read again. went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God, but into the second did the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. The Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. Verse 8, the separate holy place signified that the communion and the intimacy that we can have was not available during this covenant during this dispensation, during this time period. Verse 9, the entire tabernacle system was a figure. Figures defined as an example by which a doctrine or precept is illustrated, a parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Verse 10, there are carnal ordinances and rituals and procedures imposed on them until the Lamb would fulfill the law. Keep reading. We're almost, we're almost there, guys. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Okay, here I have three scripture references, and they're kind of long, so I'm going to just give you the references. Leviticus 17:11 says, The life is in the, the blood, the life of the flesh. Revelation chapter five, it's it's awesome there. All of all of time and eternity and people, all when when the Lamb takes that scroll, remember the guy was crying, you know, and he takes a scroll and he un and he opens it and he says, Thou and they all begin to scream and cry, they or we, I hope I can say we we all begin to scream and cry, uh, Thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every uh, kindred and tongue. 
saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb. Why are we so excited? Why are we so excited that, that the lamb is opening the scroll because of the blood that he shed for us? Because that's where the remission is. And it was for all mankind. And then, of course, Acts 20, 28 says God purchased the church with his own blood. Okay, last, last one, I think. <clears throat> uh, no, there's one more. Go ahead, Jim. And for this cause, he is the mediator of a new testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Now, I know Greg Wilson's got millions. But if he wills all that to Avery and Avery goes down to the bank and tries to buy a car and, and use that will as collateral, the banker's going to laugh at him. You know why? Because Greg's still alive. That will becomes very valuable the day he takes his last breath, okay? But it's worth nothing while the testator is alive. And we're living under the, the will of Jesus Christ. And he came and he died so that we could experience the uh, inheritance that he has for us. Okay, uh, last segment. It's a long one. I'm sorry. Trying to get there. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the truth, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us nor yet that he should offer himself often as a high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. salvation. So, uh, he had one shot at it. He had to do it one time. There's a tabernacle that I've, I've done an amazing job tonight showing y'all. <laughs> this, that's where you applaud, uh, Paul. <laughs> but, that was just an old tent. That was just temporary. That was just uh, carnal. That was, it was valuable. It was important. It was a pattern. But there's another one, yeah. and, it's a, and it's an eternal one. And I think it probably is built uh, the same way, and it's got the ark in it. And the high priest doesn't go back behind the veil in this one I'm talking about in heaven once a year. Jesus went in once. 
He went in one time. Once. It's referred to several times. So one time I was I was teaching this in the jail and and I was I don't know how I was here, but Mary Magdalene comes up to the tomb. After Jesus has been crucified, he's buried, it's three days later, the third day she shows up and she's gonna anoint his body or do something and Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. He saith unto her, Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. He's got a mission. She's a sinner. Don't touch me. And he makes it very clear why. Later on, he tells Thomas touch me. Later on, he's touching, he's cooking fish. He said, everything's cool and copacetic, but not this time. Because he hadn't done that. He, he's got one time he's going to walk into that where that Ark of the Covenant, where that te- temple is in heaven, and he's going to take his blood, whether it's symbolic or spiritual, and, or in his name. Some people believe it's in his name. And he's going to put it on the mercy seat for your sins. And so she better not touch him because he's the only hope you got. Thank God that she didn't, wasn't rebellious, amen? We'd all be lost because she would have contaminated the spotless Lamb of God right in the middle of his mission. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, uh, giving us uh, tools like a PowerPoint and projectors and screens and, and good people to pick on and to teach. And I pray, God, you would uh, set our souls on fire tonight, God. I, I believe you're going to do it. I believe, God, that truth can, can ignite on the inside of us. And, God, we can be re- renewed and revived. And uh, that uh, Avery and this new convert, Joe, can go out and turn Bloomington upside down for you. And, God, we can see a mighty revival of thousands.